Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Sam. Hey, Sam. How are you today? Doing all right, Don. How are you? I'm just sitting over here recovering as hard as I possibly can. I'm looking for the bead of sweat, and I don't quite see it. I think I'm going to call you on that. I don't think you're recovering just as hard as you can. I am letting go with a will. Oh, letting go. Now, that's a tough thing to do sometimes. That's the whole secret. Well, you know, a lot of things in this program are a secret, but let's not keep our guest a secret. We have a guest. We do have a guest. Someone that you've met, I haven't met. Introduce yourself. Well, my name's Kenneth, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a guest. Hey, Kenneth. Glad you're here. Kenneth, thanks for here. coming. To and you know, that thing now. about the thing, everything's, there, there's so many secrets in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery. You know, the thing is, you would think there really are, the way so <laughs> many people don't know stuff, but it's a matter of asking questions and doing things. That's very true. Uh, I've heard people say, you know, that when they first go to meetings, it seems like there's like like the, the inner, like it goes to the group, and it's like the in crowd, like the the pe- like cool people who like know what's going on and stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there really is. And what you do, you get there early, and you volunteer to help out and stuff, and suddenly you'll be one of those people. And when you see the people like who like, you know, help make the coffee that day, just because they got there early and they made the coffee that day. And then they're part of the in crowd. Yeah. That's like, also, basically, it's showing up. Pretty much. Showing up early. And participating. Uh, my sponsor called uh, the, the people that, that show up late and sit around the edges of the room the fringe dwellers. <laughs> the fringe see. dwellers and they, let's see, what is it, uh, relapse row on the back row. That could be the relapse row. Well, Kenneth, what we always like to start out, how did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous? What was happening in your life that made you decide to quit drinking? Uh, well, I actually decided to quit drinking several times. Uh, the first time uh, was I was 15 years old, and I believe this is the first time that I was ever somewhere where there was like real live actual liquor because I had already gotten into this phase of like chugging NyQuil or vanilla extract or whatever I could find. Yeah, you because know, I was you know 13, 14, 15 years old, so I was just getting whatever I could legally, which was you know, uh, kitchen products or cold remedies that were not really designed to be used as a uh, alcoholic beverage, but that's the way I use them. <laughs> um, they can work. They can work. Oh, they totally worked. I was I used to drink what I called uh, Roses Green Tea, which was this Roses brand. There was a Roses near my house I could walk to, and they had uh, generic. It's like generic Nyquil, but I had gone to the store as like a you know an eighth grader and like looked to see. What cold remedy had the the? Well, I couldn't decide actually when I first went there. Do I want just the longest list of ingredients or the highest alcohol percentage? And it turns out it was both the same thing. It was this this Roses brand uh, cough syrup, and uh, I discovered that if I what I would do is I would hyperventilate first. I'm like. <laughs> Until I was really, really lightheaded, and then I could chug a whole twenty ounce bottle in one go without gagging because it's like my body <laughs> wanted to reject it. Um, 
so I'm, I would be able to get that stuff down. And uh, so yeah, so that God, that was terrible. That was I mean, that was I mean, it was like you know, puking blood. Terrible. That's, that's some determined that's to go, get drunk. Drinking. I'm going to any lengths. Going yeah, to, I I, well, so. and in hindsight, I think I was probably drinking for effect. I don't think that was... I, uh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I like the taste of it. Yeah. <laughs> this is obvious. This is like I'm doing, you know, like 1 o'clock in the morning by myself in my bedroom. Well, anyway, the so side got, effect is you, you didn't have a cough afterwards. I did not have a cough. After, I did have some vomiting uh, yeah. for days. Um, I found out later what, the, what is the... Antihistamine is supposed to have stuff in there to remove mucus, and you, if you don't have the mucus lining in your stomach, the stomach acid starts eating your stomach, and that's why I was. That's why, like two days later, I'd be vomiting blood. So, so running around fifteen years old with yeah. bleeding ulcers, and so anyway, okay. yeah. But eventually, I started to meet some people who got like actors. That's why we say I tell this story. I, I say it's the first time I was around actual liquor and like and actual women, um, and um, so I ended up. Uh, I was. I was Living in Wilmington, where I've now moved to Greensboro, then moved back to Wilmington uh, in my recovery. But uh, I was in downtown Wilmington, down in the historic district, and there's nice homes downtown. And uh, there's this guy named Sam. We called him Magic Sam because uh, he was into like psychedelics and stuff. Uh, we just hung out with him too, buy liquor for high school kids, and so we thought he was really cool. And of course, you know, now I look back on this guy, it's like you know, it's early 30s. He lived with his mother, and he bought liquor for high school kids to have somebody to hang out with. So, totally cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, wow, there was a winner. And uh, and uh, there was this uh, woman there who, uh, and I don't really, I don't know her name. I don't know how old she actually was, but uh, she was an, an adult. I know that much. And she, he apparently had picked her up at a Grateful Dead concert that he'd gone to. I don't know. She was just staying with him for a while. Uh, but I ended up losing my virginity to this woman on this guy's porch. Um, and these nice historic homes down that we have the big front porches. Mm-hmm. We were on the front porch, and uh, it was like a party going on. It's so, like a lot of people saw, and it was uh, the uh, encounter, instead of sort of ending in the usual way, it ended with me vomiting, which is a big part of all of my uh, drinking stories. Um, <laughs> and uh, so and I had a friend of mine, uh, she actually carried me back into the, into the, the place and, and uh, and inside and dropped me on the guy's bed and I puked all over that and I puked all over everything and somehow buddy of mine got a cab and took me home and then of course the girl next door uh, was uh, just I don't know it's like one o'clock in the morning she's out in her front yard for some reason so she watched me fall out of the cab and roll around and just dry heaving in the bushes and, and he's telling her oh well Ken had a good night and blah 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 all this stuff and uh but I was just terrified. Was that, um, was that embarrassing for you, for her to see that, or it was, that what it was you're the whole thing was nonstop shame. It was. Um, and we were talking about before we got on on, on the broadcast uh, about that being our mention on Episcopalian, mm-hmm. and uh, which is funny because it's a denomination that doesn't really talk about you know hellfire and brimstone at all. Really, I mean, not even just de-emphasizing, but like it's just not really something we ever talk about. But I was like, I'm going to hell. This is it. I'm going. And it was the 80s, so like HIV was, you know, AIDS was a big thing. So, like, and then uh, the following Monday, actually, I was, I had to acolyte that Sunday. I remember sitting in church, my little acolyte wrote thing like, this is it. I can't believe, you know, I'm going to die of some dread disease and STD and, you know, bring shame on the family or I don't know. Um, and the following Monday at school, some skinhead, and I was the dork. My friends were dorks, and I'm sitting there with my dorky friends, and this skinhead who had been at that party, 
stopped by our little table in the cafeteria. It's like, oh my God, you won't believe what Ken did. He had sex with the nastiest woman and his thing's going to fall off. And blah, blah. So then it's like all over school. And so I'm being like, and then one of the guys who was at lunch with me blurted out something about it in my English class the next period. Um, and so and it's see, it felt like the entire school was talking about how I was going to die of AIDS and, and how I, you know, had sex. And then like, and I heard stories of, oh, that girl was a witch and she's like, she's a Satan worshiper, just all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, ended up skipping school to go down to the health department. Um, uh, cause I was convinced I had some horrible disease. In fact, I've talked to any number of people uh, who had the story of like going, being over at somebody's house, and you know, before they got sober, and they have to go to the bathroom, and like while they're in there, they they help themselves to a bottle of pills. The only time I've ever actually done that, and I did, you know, pills are part of my story, but uh, the only time I've ever just like gone to someone's bathroom and just swiped a whole bottle of pills. Uh, was when it was after this, and uh, I was at some girl's house, and her mother had a bottle of amoxicillin. Because <laughs> I was sure that I had gotten syphilis or something, and so like I stole like antibiotics and was eating handfuls of those. The cure. Yeah. Then I went to the health department, and the the cabbie followed me in there because he wanted to see if they had flu shots, and so like, and it's like that, and I called the health department, you know, stealthily. Is you know back and forth cell phones and stuff, so I had to call them. Like no one's at the house, and found out they had a special day when you could come and get it for an STD clinic. And and also I got a clean bill of health, but um, yeah, it was just it was very. But that was, I, after that, I swore I was like, and I'd grown up knowing that uh, alcoholism was a disease. I, I knew that it ran in families. I knew it ran in my family on on both sides of the family. Um, I'd heard. Well, my mom didn't talk about my dad's drinking a lot, but my dad's second wife talked about his drinking a lot. In fact, the last time I ever saw her, she was told me she, they were planning an intervention on him. And uh, next thing I heard, he had moved out. Um, and so I don't know if he had gotten wind of that or you know what. He's never explained that to me. Um, so but, you uh, knew you knew that uh, alcohol was trouble in oh, your yeah. family, and it was major trouble for you just from the get go. Right. And so I was, I was and you were like, totally, let's do it again. Yeah. Well, I, I quit. Okay. I, I quit for. I managed to finish high school. Okay. Um, and because I, I knew I was an alcoholic, I, mean, I just I was like, I, I, I can't control. And I had friends who, like the guy who brought me home, like they would go out and drink, and they would have, you know, and like yeah, he was the one who always got the liquor, but he would, uh, he would take a few swigs, and he's like, woohoo, you know, like party, you know, but like he didn't keep drinking, and he would go around and talk to people and talk to girls and all this, and like I. I never could do that. Um, and so I, I didn't really drink. I drank one more time when I was in high school. I ended up being arrested, but it wasn't for drunkenness per se. But it, it does keep it true that uh, every time I've ever been arrested, I was drinking. Right. <laughs> I didn't get arrested every time I drank, but every time right. I've ever been arrested, I've been drinking. That's kind of like uh, I'm a house painter. And not all, uh, not all house painters are alcoholics, but almost all alcoholics have done a little painting. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a job that suits it. So, what brought you to AA? How did you decide that you that you were going um, to use that as a solution to this problem you're having? Well, I can't. Okay. Well, my uh, mother's father had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in Warnock, Virginia, in like nineteen early nineteen fifties. I don't know exactly exactly when. Uh, but I'd heard 
my mother talk about that, and my mother's mother uh, finally just straight drank herself to death in the mid-80s. So um, when I was, I don't know, I was going to school, I was a kid. Um, but, uh, and somehow they had never gotten a divorce. I don't know that he was faithful to her the whole time, but uh, he wouldn't divorce her because they just didn't believe in that. But she was drunk all the time, and he was out doing AA stuff. Uh, but I'd heard about that, so I knew AA existed. Mm-hmm. And then I started drinking again. Um, I went to Guilford College here in Greensboro, and uh, and I was moving in my uh, freshman year. I mean, the very first day that people are moving in, my roommate came over to me and uh, said, "Hey, I got a fake idea. We'll go to the store and buy some beer." But well, I hadn't I hadn't been drunk in like two years, <laughs> and uh, I just and my parents had left me some money. I just handed them all the money in my wallet. <laughs> I had like fifty, forty bucks. I don't know how much it was, but. But it's one of those things, you know, I can say all the money I had, like, here's all my money. And he's like, well, God, what do you want me to get? And I was like, I don't know, just get as much as you can. <laughs> get it out. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, so I was, uh, yeah. Well, so, well, you must have felt good if you hadn't drank in two years. It's like, okay, that's okay. Yeah. Um, drink. I guess it's because I moved away from home. Somehow, it's just one of those things, there was no, I wouldn't, I didn't occur to me that he was going to show up and offer to buy alcohol. Like, it's just without any thought at all. I went right back to it, and people, you know, and then they would say, you know, uh, I wondered why when I was in college, they would refer to me as Crazy Ken. I'm like, well, because when people first met me, like, I was plastered drunk. I mean, I was, you wow. know. that really just laid the groundwork for college, did it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely did. So, I, uh, after three years of college, got my first DWI, um, and uh, I had to go do the little assessment thing you do, and instead of being a good alcoholic and lying my pants off, uh, I basically just went in there and it's like, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I shouldn't drink. I mean, I just, I just knew. I mean, that was the first thing out of my mouth when I talked to the assessor was, exactly. I know I'm an alcoholic. I mean, because I knew, I like, you know, it, you know um, and uh, so I've been back at it for three years, and you know, just all kinds of, you know, people calling the ambulance on me, and um, just all kinds of insanity. But did you so, try to moderate? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Do you try I mean, to control I, it? I, yeah, and I, I would make, I would play games myself, and I would um, try to only do it certain times, or you know. And there were, I mean, I had figured out um, by my second year of college. Cause I remember there's one, and you had one of those little dorm fridge things that you get, and. Um, I'd been drinking, you know, on Saturday night or whatever, and somehow I passed out far away from my from my dorm room. And then on Monday, I had, had some morning classes. I went to class, and I got back from class and uh, opened my, my little dorm fridge, and there was like five beers in there. And like there, were, I, there was never alcohol left over from the weekend. Like it was just like, and I was like, oh, I can't, I'm, I, sorry, I passed out over wherever I'd passed out. That's I never got back to this beer on Saturday night. Like. Oh, wow. So I'd like, you know, so I, you know, and just a few minutes later, people who had just been in class with me came by my dorm because I had a car and they're like, hey, we want to go out to lunch. Can you take us? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, well, you guys have to drive. And they're like, why? Well, I just slammed five beers. Mm. And they're like, why'd you do that? And I'm like, well, it was in the fridge. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, was there. there. And there was no other. And that was the thing we talked about. You know, just uh-huh. no well, defense at all. That was morning? Yeah, that was morning. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, my first drink was morning drinking. That was that's that's part of my story too. Yeah, I was always, 
you know, nine o'clock in the morning. Like, well, but that doesn't like, sound like you were trying to control it. Well, did, that was my you... film. That was the best thing. I figured out where I'd say I'd try to control it. Um, I would try to not drink. Like, there are times when I would be out with people and they would say, this is, and more uh, after I had, cause I quit drinking for another basically two years after that first DWI. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't sober the whole time. Started smoking things mm-hmm. and doing. That's where I got into pot and pills and stuff. And that was, which was explicitly in right when I tell my story in the AA meeting. I say this is uh, for me. This is not an outside issue. I mean, I consciously decided I need to find some way to control my my drinking. Um, and my mother has even told me that my senior year of college, uh, I called her for college. I said, Mom, yeah, I, I figured it out. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I just can't drink. And she was thinking, like, oh, thank God, he's finally figured this out. Like, he's got the family illness. And I said, why just smoke pot instead? It's great. I don't get the hang, you know. Yeah. And so I was, you know, so I was, I was trying to manage my alcoholism with, with a combination of pot and pills. Um, but when I started back again, um, it, it was when I was actually over 21, and I would be, like, out at restaurants and stuff. And people, people said, hey, why don't we get a couple drinks? I would say no. Like, cause I knew if I had anything else I was going to do that day other than drink, I just wouldn't touch it because there was no. I figured out that, and and me, and I guess there were times where like I would have two beers and then like have to stop and there wouldn't be any more, whatever. But that was so miserable. I mean, it was yes. so god awful that I would just, I just would, I wouldn't touch a drop if. If I couldn't get my drink on, that's exactly I, how I was as well. I mean, it was one. Of, it would actually piss me off that I couldn't have any more. I couldn't let mm-hmm. myself have more. And so, in those situations, it just was. Uh, I, I just would choose not to drink, and mm-hmm. nobody wanted me around then either. But uh, you know, it was one of those things that um, uh, I, I like you had to drink if I was going to drink. Mm-hmm. It was on. It wasn't going to be social. It wasn't going to be a couple. It was like, I'm going to do it. And if I'm in a situation that I can't do it, then I just need to yeah, to completely refrain. And I wasn't sober. you know. And I, and I had no intention of not drinking ever again. But I had this control where I could not drink tonight. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. That's where I was fooling myself with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, and that was the thing I would, have, I would have periods where I would take, it was easier for me to take breaks. And I was, well, I was almost never a continual round-the-clock drinker. I mean, there was a couple of times where I, you know, might drink a few days in a row, but for the most part, I would just, I would drink so much when I drank that once I finally passed out, the next day I'd be so hungover, I would, I would just have to take a break. So I was really a periodic, and by period, I mean, you know, I was a binge drinker. My binges were like twice a week, but, right. um, but each one would be like a you know a two day affair. It was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. Um, and I would you know have hangovers that lasted days sometimes. I didn't realize till I came to AA that the that that effect of I would rather have no nothing to drink. I'd mm-hmm. rather have no beers than two beers mm-hmm. and quit because if I have to quit, it's just no fun. That's it's miserable. And I didn't really realize that was alcoholism until I came to AA and learned about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a phenomenon of craving. That's what yeah. the doctor, uh, I love it, said, you know, you know, it explains things for which we cannot otherwise account. Right. And that's what it is. It's like, 
Well, not the first. The first time I read it, it didn't. It was like gibberish. No, but, right. but the first time it clicked, what it was actually saying, I was like, "Oh, that's it. That's exactly it." And I just remembered me, and I was probably six months sober when I had this revelation. When like it's and I'd read it a dozen times, so I was like, "That's what it's saying. That's exactly it." Like, oh my god. So you reached a place where it sounds like the end of your drinking. You were completely convinced that if you were going to drink, you were going to go all out and there's no control in it so you can what your control was i'm just going to control when i drink and i'm not going to drink except if i do that's it get out of you know right literally the the last get out of the way the, the last woman i dated before i got sober uh i told that she was uh i was 23 i guess and she was uh she was a 21 year old virgin when we started dating and um she had never drank, never smoked a cigarette. Just, I mean, I don't know how she got tangled up. Well, I do know how she got tangled up with me, but it's, it's <laughs> ridiculous that she got tangled up with me. But I mean, I, once we started spending time together, I, I told her, I'm an alcoholic. I have to get drunk a couple times a week. I will try to shield you from that as much as possible. Oh, wow. Because I know it's terrible, but like, you just have to understand this is just something I have to do. Like, I cannot not do it. I mean, I was. I explicitly told her this, um, and so I would try to drink when we didn't have. And there were a couple of times when, you know, I would forget that she was coming over. I forget we had plans or something. I'd be like, "Oh, did I? That's right. I told you I was going to do that. I'm sorry. I already started drinking." She's like, "Well, okay. We'll just want you. You know, you're not drunk yet." And I'm like, "You don't understand. <laughs> like, I've already this started. This started. <laughs> like, it's, it's on now. Like, there's, there's, the, you can't. I cannot change course now. And I remember that. I mean, like. And I was like, I know it makes no sense, but you just got to understand. This is just the way I am. I'm an alcoholic. I knew that I was an alcoholic. You knew you were an alcoholic. You knew that I was. So that's you learned that from your family, I guess. My, right? my family, and then I had done uh, that, that thing when I when I was uh, 21, and I had to go through. I was 20 when I got my first DWI. But I was 21 by the time I did all the treatment and all that stuff. But they told me I was doing intensive outpatient. I have since learned when I you know describe. What it was, I think I was, I was at a place here in Greensboro, and um, I, I had to go to what they called IOP, but it was from eight to twelve, so four hours a day, five days a week for like ten weeks. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's partial hospitalization. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's yeah, above sure. even IOP. Okay, so what was the crisis that got you to AA, or was it a crisis, or was it a court order? <laughs> it was uh, when I finally surrendered. Was um, after going after that, after that IOP, a couple years later, when I started drinking again, um, and then things got real crazy. My family sent me to uh, a 28 day rehab, got out of there, um, went to India for a month to a, a spiritual pilgrim center there. Uh, but then when I got back to the States, was moved to Wilmington to get away. I just cut off everybody I knew in, in, in Greensboro and I start my life over sober. And I was kind of hanging around AA. There was a young people's meeting I was stopped in at. And uh, I, uh, well, I feel like I have to tell the story, but there, it, I guess it must have been May of 2000. I uh, was coming out of that young people's group, and there was this girl there um, who I'd met. Um, and, like, we never dated or anything. It was just, you know, some, someone I got to know some. And uh, she was pulling me aside. She said, Ken, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life or how to work your program, but I see you're doing everything necessary to relapse. And I just, I feel like I have to say something to you about it. And 
what? What are you talking about? Like I've gone, like I've gone to rehab. I've moved to a new town. I've, you know, I've got, I'm going to this. This is my home group here, and she's like, yeah, look, you're hardly ever here, and you know, you're not working with sponsors. Like I've got a sponsor. He's right over there. And I'm pointing across the parking lot. She's like, I know who your sponsor is. I know you never call him. I'm like, oh, I not only have I called him, I have called him twice. <laughs> and the uh, injustice of this I know. accusation. <laughs> yeah, like I just was so. Uh, I was so upset with her, um, but within two weeks of that, I was drinking again, um, and it was, and actually it started, as is so often the case, some of my buddies from Greensboro, I think, from school, were coming through town, and anyway, but I, playmates. I, yeah, yeah, I relapsed for one week, and found myself coming to, and coming out of a blackout, not even coming to, because apparently I had talked to doctors and stuff before this, but I drove down to Myrtle Beach, again, to go to a spiritual retreat center, because I'm very spiritual, I was always looking for that spiritual solution. Um, and, uh, the spirit, alcohol is spirits. It is. It uh, is. I mean, I think there's something, something to there's, that. I that think there is. I'm looking for something larger than myself or a uh-huh. feeling of, you know, need to do something to change where I feel. Turns out alcohol is just not a sustainable way of doing that. Whereas bingo, it's not yeah, sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's an unsustainable way of altering my consciousness to make life bearable. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was driving down to, I was Drinking 40s in the car on the way down to Myrtle Beach. That's uh, appropriate. To go to a spiritual retreat center for the weekend. <laughs> and uh, next thing I remember is being uh, coming to in a CAT scan machine wow. in Grand Strand Hospital. Um, and that's the, you know, apparently oh, I, I'd swerved on oncoming traffic, um, hit two people who were down there on vacation uh, from Charlotte. Fortunately, they walked away from the accident, they were not injured. Uh, or said they, they were treated and released at the scene is what the police report said took uh, approximately 20 minutes with the draws of life to extract me from my vehicle and um, this is a close call yeah yeah blood alcohol was 0.31 wow. which is you know aside from the concussion that'll keep you from remembering what you did that's the beginning of pickling there yeah um, boiled as an owl Boiled as an owl. I was like, I was asking for how boiled is an owl. Well, I was one boiled owl that night. Um, well, it's funny because that night they took me because it's like I don't know nine thirty ten o'clock apparently when I had the car accident, um, and I was completely incoherent. You know when they brought me, they even said you know like you know patient responds to painful stimuli but does so in a purposeless manner. So it means I couldn't even like you know if they're I don't know pinching my nipples or wherever they're doing their sternum rub or something. You know, I like, couldn't even respond properly. But um, the next day, uh, Saturday afternoon, apparently a doctor talked to me and I told him that uh, I used to have a drinking problem, but I haven't had a drink for some time. So I was lying about my drinking, even in a blackout, because that was oh. Saturday afternoon, and the CAT scan wasn't until like 7 o'clock Saturday night. And this is, you know, going, I had to go back and look at medical records and stuff to piece this together. So... I just remember like waking up and kind of looking around. If you've seen the movie Akira, anybody seen the movie? I haven't. I haven't. Well, Go ahead with it. Though. Well, yeah. there's this scene where this guy's like, it's an anime thing uh, from the '80s, but it's where um, this guy uh, Tetsuo has been in this bad motorcycle accident, and like this government lab has taken him and like stuck him in this machine, and they're scanning him and stuff. And that that was what came to my mind. It's like because I, I start looking around, and, like I'm in this thing. And there's little, literally like a little speaker next to my head that says, Don't move. You're going to mess up the scan. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I mean, scan. No, I was like, I was like being in a movie or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 
Where the am I? aliens have me. Really? That's the thing. I was like, I'm being scanned. You know, it's a oh, what a God, place to so wake weird. up from a blackout. Yeah, and just I had no idea. What, and it's funny I can see why because I was so incoherent. Like they could tell my leg was mangled real bad. Uh, but other than that, they they just weren't sure what what was wrong with me other than being drunk. But, well, this crisis has depth and weight. Right. Oh, I it, I, I call it the divine pimp slap. Like this is, and uh, <laughs> I like that. And then say, back when I'd been in India uh, after rehab, I spent a lot of time praying for God to make me be sober because I'd had you know periods of abstinence before mm-hmm. that never lasted. And I know when I was a couple years sober, I used to share about that and say, "See, I was so stupid. I thought that God would just strike me sober, but God doesn't work that way. God's not going to just strike you sober." But then my perception of it changed again. I was like. Oh, no, 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 no. God absolutely did strike me sober. Like, yeah. if, if that accident had been any worse, somebody would have died. It couldn't have been. And, I, and, and apparently, I, I, I swerved in oncoming traffic at highway speed. This is what it said in the, the police report. I mean, so, I hate to think what your life would be if... It, it, um, well, you could easily be dead. So or be in be prison the rest of my life for, for killing people. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Um, so, so then you reapply yourself in AA mm-hmm. and what did you do different that you weren't doing in AA before I did the program oh okay. <laughs> there's a program <laughs> there is a program and this is why I always want to tell a story about that girl uh, who had pulled me and just straight call and not just like you're not working your program but I mean, she just said specifically you're not doing this you're not going to meetings regularly like mm-hmm. you, know, you barely go to meetings. Yeah, go ahead and list them. And you're you're not working with a sponsor on a daily basis. You're not working steps. You got to, and the guy who I'd asked to be my sponsor, he told me he was in graduate school at the time at UNCW, and he said, "Well, I'm really busy. I don't really have time for to really give a newcomer the type of uh, the amount of time that, that that you really need." And I was like, "No, that's all right. I got this." You yeah. know, what I, mean? yeah. I was like, "You'll be the perfect sponsor for me. I don't need a lot of help. I've got all this stuff figured out." I've heard ask for a sponsor, someone who's a little threatening, who you like what they have, but you're a little threatened by them because those are the people who are going to challenge. That that's the type of people who challenge me to really dive deeper. Well, I know. I know I, I appreciate why people say that. The the sponsor I ended up with uh, is actually super laid back. And the thing is, I didn't after that accident. I couldn't walk unaided for six months. I mean, it was I couldn't walk at all. I mean, even after about three months, I had a walker. I mean, I was I got out there. I was doing like the it really was a wake up call. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I was uh, in bad bad shape and. Yeah, you know, and my mother had come to me in the hospital and said, you know, I don't know where you're going to go when you get out of the hospital, but you're not coming to my house. Mm-hmm. She's gone to Al-Anon. Good for her. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I was mangled pretty good. And that was the thing. And then, but I remember when my mom gave me that talk in the hospital thinking, yeah, I, hadn't, I haven't really done the deal. And so, like, this is my fault. I felt like it was my fault. Like, I, I screwed everything. I was like, I haven't really done, you know, because I wasn't working with sponsor. I wasn't going to meetings every day. And I remember the girl saying, um, well, you know, where you are in recovery, you should be at a meeting every day. And I was like, you don't understand. I don't have a job. Cause I, and I was at this crazy <laughs> thought process at the time that like being excuse. unemployed means I didn't have time to get to meetings. Like no, 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 yeah, right. that's the opposite of the way it works. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was so that's crazy. a great one. Yeah, like no, you don't understand. 
Uh, yeah, that's right up there with like, I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't even been drunk since the last time I drank. Yeah, right. <laughs> I heard that one recently. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, so I, I was like, I'm going to do everything that, that those AA people tell me. Because I knew, I knew, because uh, someone had loved me enough to call me out on that. I knew I had not really been doing the deal. And I'm like, I'm going to do everything you guys suggest. And so I mean, next time this happens, it'll be your fault. And that was really my motivation. It's <laughs> just to like, work. shift That'll the work. blame. Um, but in order for it to be their fault, I have you've to be got to do it all. I've got to do it all, and I haven't had a drink since. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's <laughs> what, but it's what they always say. It's like it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, it, all that matters is what you do. I know someone who says that she uh, got sober. She decided, okay, well, I'm going to do what you say and prove that I'm not going to be happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about <laughs> the way I Yeah, yeah. And she did and ended up happy, joyous, and free, but... But she was angry about it. Yeah, yeah. How dare you make me happy, joyous, and free? I was enjoying being grumpy. <laughs> you know, this, this business about the sponsorship thing, um, I, I do like that there's um, such a variety of, of sponsor, of sponsoring mm. types. Um, because, you know, the, the same type is not going to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years that's the best practice for me when it comes to finding a sponsor mm -hmm. is for me to ask someone else who I respect in the program, mm -hmm. who's a good sponsor for me? Because my picker means that I'm going to pick somebody that I can manipulate mm -hmm. or somebody that I don't want to tell everything to because I want to impress them and things like that. Mm -hmm. But when someone that I respect says... Go talk to that guy. I go and talk to him and ask him to be my sponsor. And that's what I did this last go-round when I moved back to Greensboro. Mm -hmm. And I've got a fantastic sponsor relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's unlike any sponsor that I've had. Uh, so it's, it's really a cool experience. Um, I think what it all boils down to, actually I know what mm -hmm. it all boils down to, like you know, <laughs> me not doing it my way, like an owl, <laughs> is me not doing this my way. That's right. Get sober mm -hmm. somebody else's way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's see. Well, that's what my sponsor says about me is that because I'm always trying to give credit, and he's like for helping me because he was such so huge to me. And he's actually the third sponsor I had, but I got well the first one I'd gotten before I had that car accident and everything. And so I, I've talked to him after that, but he's like, you really need somebody to work with. And so I got you know the next guy I saw, and that didn't work out. That lasted you know a couple months, and I, I went to got Tom, and I was like, but he would he would give me rides all the time. The meetings, and of course, I was on crutches and stuff. I remember, I mean, he would come pick me up, like I'm on crutches, you know, trying to get out of my, my apartment to go, and we'd go down to a halfway house in town to pick up, you know, guys at the halfway house, uh, you know, to see if anybody needed to go to a meeting. I'm like, this is so great. We're helping those poor guys at the halfway house. I'm like, none of the guys at the halfway house were on crutches, you know? <laughs> so, and, and half of them had a job, even though they were in the halfway house, you know? Like, they were doing a lot better. Some of them had girlfriends or something. They were doing way better than I was, <laughs> you know? But like, it's so great. We get to help the poor guys at the halfway house. But those things, he was one of those guys, he would always, he's just always, and he still does that. He's always giving people rides to meetings. Wherever is his home group at the time. He gets there at least an hour early. He said, "If you try, if he's in your home group, like if you want to set up, if you want to make coffee, you have to be more than an hour early for the meeting. Because if you get there an hour early, he'll be there and the coffee will be made. Um, and that's just that's just his that's that that's his service is is and he's always got. Um, oh, I like to say you know we've had lunch basically every Wednesday for the past fifteen years, sixteen years now. 
Um, but uh, there's actually several of us now who, who he's got you know the sponsor stuff. But he always has he always has one you know young guy who's in a halfway house or something. He's always you know he's got lots of us who you know been around for a while, but he's always he's always picking up you know a, a new guy. And he um, said that's been so huge. And then I say he he's really laid back in terms of like he wasn't very dogmatic in terms of. We have to do this. You have to do that. He was just always like, "Well, you want to go to a meeting tomorrow? Call me tomorrow." So I call him in the morning. Hey, you would take me in a meeting, and then after a while, that got to be our regular pattern. Five days a week, we were going to meetings together. Or one day we'd have lunch, and four four days we'd go to meetings. And then uh, Friday and Saturday was time for him to be with his wife, and that was our pattern for three and a half years, when I, wow. until I got a car. Mm-hmm. And then once I did get a car, it was really weird because I was like, "Well, I don't, I don't want to like." Go by yourself. Yeah. To the <laughs> um, but he always says that, you know, because he said, because like, well, Ken, you were so motivated. So by the time I got him as my sponsor, I was like, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And also, I, I, my, uh, one of my character defects is over analyzing things and over intellectualizing things. So I'd be like, well, I've read this in the big book and I read this in 12 and 12 and I'm, you know, doing this like comparative analysis of text and stuff. <laughs> and he'd just be like, well, you know, when I was doing that back in New Jersey, back in 1986, what I did was, and he would just tell me what he did. He would talk over me sometimes, which, you know, you kind of have to. You guys may have done that. Yeah. <laughs> but I was worse then, you know. Like, but that is one yeah. of the best things about this program and, and, and our fellowship in particular mm-hmm. is that we talk about what we did. Mm-hmm. I talk about what I did, and I'm not telling you, do this. Right. Because that doesn't work with people like that. Yeah. You know, well, I, well, I, I could say... This is an ideal time for us to uh, uh, have our, uh, we have a sponsor this week, the Sponsor Sponsor Company, and it's it happens to be about sponsorship, so let's play this ad and then we'll have a chance to discuss it. That sounds good, Don. Thank you. Are you tired of talking to your sponsor, a real person who doesn't understand you, or even worse, understands you too well? Do you want to live in a virtual reality where you can seem sober without all the discomfort of looking at your behavior? The Sponsor Sponsor Company has the answer. OK Goober, the virtual sponsor app. OK Goober won't hang up the phone with remarks like, Call me back when you prayed about it. No more accountability. No more rigorous honesty. Just ask OK Goober anything and get vague answers that you can manipulate in your mind any way you choose. OK Goober, should I pick up a start over chip just because I smoked pot? Do you think that's wise? OK Goober, must I break up with my girlfriend just because of my wife? To thine own self be true. OK Goober, do I really have to pay back that asshole? Do you think that's wise? Okay, Goober, should I lie about all my DUIs? To thine own self be true. Okay, Goober, will co-sign all your bullshit. And you can feel good about it until your next drink. Download Okay, Goober, the virtual sponsor app today. Do you think that's wise? Sponsor, sponsor, and all its products are not approved by Alcoholics Anonymous. And since they are not real, they probably will not work. <laughs> I don't know about this company. It's I, a shady company, man. I don't, <laughs> uh, how much are they sponsoring? I mean, you know, are they like? Uh, I, I haven't seen any checks. I yet. don't want to go into the finances, <laughs> but. 
Well, we've got a free copy of the Sponsor Schmonsor uh, app for you today. That's so great. As, just as a thank you, you can make that whole like today. eight ball thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an eight ball. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, you have to call your real sponsor and get, you know, reflections on your behavior. Mm -hmm. Real sponsors are tough sometimes. I, I think it's a, a choosing the sponsor is important. And I mm -hmm. need somebody who's going to be reflecting on my behavior and giving me an honest answer about mm -hmm. what I'm doing that's a dispassionate answer. Completely. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about having a sponsor. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things for me, too, is that um, while my sponsors over time have become my friends, mm -hmm. they are not my friends at the start. Now, they're mm -hmm. friendly. They're there to help me, no doubt. But this is not my buddy. This is someone who's going to call me on my shit and point out some things that are tough for me to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's really a tough thing for a friend, someone who's already my friend, mm -hmm. to do. So for me, it's been important to, uh, to, to have sponsors that are people that I don't really know. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, I don't know that they're working the program or, or I, have, you know, I see them in the rooms and all that kind of stuff. But it just means that you know we're not buddies. We're not hanging out and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I depend on the sponsor to be a... Uh, I need my sponsor sometimes to not worry about hurting my feelings. Yeah. If it's got to be... If i got to be told something... And it's surprising how often I can call up my sponsor about something that's going on. And before it's out of my mouth, I go, Oh, I see. Because now <laughs> it's been long enough that I can... It just... Just the act of calling him... Uh, gives me a different perspective on myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the way it is in my spot. A lot of things that I talk to him about, I'll, I'll, I'll work myself through it just by, by talking it out with him. Some of the best feedback he's ever given me is, uh huh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, yeah. um, surprising how effective that can be. It is. Um, but also, the thing I was just discussing in my head um, is it takes a village. I and mean, that's to me where it's happening. I have my sponsor who's like, I like, you know, I say, I mean, for years now, we, we meet every Wednesday and we talk about, and sometimes we talk about really personal stuff, sometimes really profound stuff, sometimes spiritual stuff, sometimes really profane stuff and just dirty jokes and just, you know, laughing and carrying on. That's the thing. It's yeah. just, you just never know from one, one day to the next what we're going to end up talking about. But um, I've got so many people, like, like the girl that, who, who called me out, you know, before I got sober, but I mean, you're still that, in touch. That, no, no. Uh, I saw her about. You know, I got sober in two thousand. About two thousand five or six. I was down where she. I knew she was living in Myrtle Beach, and she worked at a bookstore. And I was down there, and asked her. I found out what bookstore it was she worked at, and I went by and I stopped. And she remembered me, and she's like, "Oh, hey, blah, blah. And She's like, "All married, and has kids, and you know, she's still sober and active in the program, and whatnot down there." Um, but I told her that story. It's like you know, that's part of my story now. Is where you. Pulled me aside and said that to me, and she's like, "Really?" Wow. I'm like, "Yeah, you don't remember?" She's like, "No." She's like, "No." I mean, she's like, "I, re I remember being really worried about you because I, I mean, that sounds like something I would say, but I don't remember saying exactly that to you." Like, this changed my yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes, yes. that's right. Because it changed my perspective. I mean, I don't think I've never had an accident quite like that. But I've wrecked cars before. I've been arrested before. I've been in jail before. I've been, you know. All that stuff, you know, but this is different because I, I knew I didn't hadn't done the deal. Um, I, but there's so many people 
who been part of my recovery. But before I even met my sponsor, I had two guys who came to me called the intergroup and they sent out this guy who I'm still, I still see around sometimes. He brought out a buddy of his to 12 step me. Uh, Cause I literally, I live in the second floor apartment. I couldn't get out of the apartment uh, to even go to a meeting and they brought meetings and I'm, you know, college, not just college educated, but arrogant about it. And, uh-huh. you know, like I, I have a degree in mathematics and physics and I had, you know, and I had, had a subscription to Scientific American, and I had books all over my apartment. They, of course, these are like surfer dudes, I mean, they're older than me, but they're like, they're, they're jocks, you know, and they're coming and they're talking about some citywide tennis league they played in, and, you know, surfing, and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, do you really read these books? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, was, and my apartment was disgusting. I mean, I, was, I literally had to pee in a bottle. Like, they had one of these little, um, bedside urinals that they gave me in the hospital and like I, they would come to my apartment and like hey could you dump this in the toilet for me um and at the time i was a smoker and my ashtray in my apartment which is the whole apartment's only two well the bathroom is two rooms um and uh i had a shoe box that i lined with aluminum foil and that was my ashtray and i would just smoke and i was always trying to get people to come by and bring me cigarettes these guys and were like, doing service work <laughs> oh they were and they, they not only did they come and they would sit there and they would read to me you know like i need to be read to you know? yeah. <laughs> i needed to be read to and i needed yeah. to hear their stories um and they started coming every week and for a couple months and it was, became a little men's big book study at my apartment every week until i was oh, that's good cool. enough to get out and good. go go to meetings on my own that's great that's very cool Kenneth, thanks for coming here and sharing your story, but don't leave. We're going to have, we've still got another segment, a little bit of time here on the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. (laughs) There goes that owl and and, and there was a chicken. chicken. (laughs) Who let that chicken in here? Boil that chicken. (laughs) I love boiled chicken with some boiled owl. (laughs) <laughs> so this is the uh, the time of our program where we uh, we have our ask an old the old timers question uh, from a listener. And since we not yet published these podcasts yet, we don't have a presence on the web where we're getting questions from listeners. So we've been making them up. But today we decided we're not going to make it up, and we're actually going to fess up to what we've been doing. <laughs> and. Uh, and, and one rigorous of things, honesty. <laughs> that rigorous honesty. We'll make amends to all you listeners later. Um, but um, but we didn't have a question. Mm-hmm. And so and, and we've talked about service. And the, the service that I've been hearing mm-hmm. uh, in the, the first part of this has been direct service. Mm-hmm. One alcoholic helping another alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we've got general service. Mm-hmm. And But my service sponsor made it out very clearly to me uh, a while ago that, you know, Direct service is one alcoholic helping another, and general service is what makes direct service possible. It's the stuff behind the scenes, like the printing mm-hmm. of the big books and, and websites that have meeting finders and all that kind of stuff that can help people find mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous and be able to have this literature and all that. Um, so the question that I was going to make up today mm-hmm. <laughs> is actually a question that I've had. Have you ever taken a meeting to the yes. jail? Have you done correctional facilities? general service uh, i've done correctional facilities direct direct service, service. I've, 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 been, okay. I've been to meetings inside prisons i've, I've had uh some service positions in general service uh area literature coordinator and area cpcpi coordinator CPCPI. and 
treasurer and some other stuff. What is C CPCPI? CPCPI is cooperation with the professional community. That is CPC, which is GSO's its own desk. In North Carolina, we always stick these things two together. And then PI is public information. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in my humble opinion, I think in North Carolina, we stick CPCP and PI together, and we really just do CPC. We haven't done kept up with the PI part of it as much. Um, but that's that's really neat if you're someone like me who just loves to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it's a chance to go talk to professionals about Alcoholics Anonymous, explain what we do, what we don't do, all that kind of stuff. And those professionals would be? Uh, social workers, doctors, nurses, lawyers, uh, employee assistance program professionals, um, just counselors, therapists, psychologists, uh, probation officers. I mean, just so any, any profession. They're like looking for a speaker about Alcoholics Anonymous or? Um, what we do is we offer to go and give presentations uh, to these different professional organizations to, to explain essentially this, what AA is, what it is not, what we do, and how to get in touch with us, how to, and how to make an effective referral. Mm -hmm. um, so so these the are people who, who are encountering alcoholics right? And you know, as in part their of their profession, profession and, right. and you're helping them to become That's aware of, of what Alcoholics Anonymous is, where we are, and what we do. Yeah, and it's and it's it is a huge need, and it's interesting. I've been at a professional organization and had somebody who had to be a member of AA, but never said so. Uh, come up to me and say, "How do you justify being here promoting Alcoholics Anonymous?" Like, well, we you know, have a policy of attraction, not promotion. They have explained stuff, but this is you know in, in our eleventh tradition where it says our public relations policy should be based on attraction rather than promotion. That does mean we have public relations like sure. that's something we actively do um, you know we started out the podcast making jokes about secret secret society and secrets within the society but you know we're anonymous we're not secret <laughs> we're not a right. secret society. but it is true just like you may have heard people say if you want to if someone's an active drunk and you want to hide something from them stick it under an aa book they'll never look at it <laughs> right. but if you want to hide something from your average aa member just put a, a, a service manual on top of it they will never find it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. now, wait, is this another one of those secrets? There's yeah. a service manual? Super secret service manual, yes. What is the super secret service manual? It is a manual that explains, well, it's got 12 concepts in it, which a lot of people think, you know, 12 steps, and there's 12 traditions, and some people think there's 12 promises, which is, I mean, depends, you can number them, so there's 12. <laughs> uh, but there's, the, but the third legacy is service, and the, the 12 things that go with that are the 12 concepts for general service. That's in the service manual. But also the service manual, it is a manual that explains the service structure and explains about home groups and GSRs and DCMs and uh, what the area does and what the conference does and what the trustees do and all that. Our two separately incorporated uh, corporations, AA World Services and Grapevine. So it sounds like in many ways the general service uh, uh, aspect, the, the things that are described in the service manual and such, this is kind of like the behind-the-scenes stuff of AA. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a fair? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's sort of the scaffolding that holds everything together. The scaffolding, yeah. Uh, or you could see, I, I, I think of a lot of it as being, it's the nervous system of our fellowship as a whole. If you think of the fellowship, our group conscience, you know, um, the, this is, I, I know I'm sometimes a little esoteric, but my my thought is, 
or the image that always comes to my mind is just every neuron in my brain could be kept alive in a petri dish somewhere and you have my entire nervous system alive but each neuron separate and there would be no kenneth there would be no conscious entity that i know as me and the same thing is true with with service if you you could groups could can exist in isolation you know in any way there's two alcoholics come together and they have no other affiliation that they call themselves an AA group if that's what they want to do but the consciousness there's a group consciousness of our fellowship as a whole only exists when when the neurons are in communication which it's a functioning brain it has a consciousness and i really believe that that our fellowship has a consciousness uh, or has a conscience um you know when we're communicating with each other i really like that analogy Me too that's yeah. great i want to steal that okay absolutely you know I, if, I heard if you say it three times in aa it's yours so yeah it's gonna be mine so. <laughs> i'll give you another week so. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing but that's what that's what the general service structure does is it a, it's a mechanism for harnessing the group consciousness of our fellowship as a whole but i want to get this service structure clear in my head so let me go for this from the bottom, uh, which would be you got the members of AA, then you got the meetings, and then you got the home group, mm -hmm. which organizes and takes care of the meetings. So those are above them are the home groups, and mm -hmm. above the home group has a district <coughs> representative. Yeah, district representative is well. First of all, the groups are at the top. Of the triangle. We normally talk about the they call it the inverted triangle because the groups are at the top, and as you move down. And from less uh, authority and more of a service position, um, you said the groups are at the top, and then you have districts and then area. But the uh, each so each district elects a member of, and this is this makes no sense to me, but this was historically this is the way that they call it. So each district elects a member of the area committee from that district, and they call them DCMs, which means district committee member. Which to me always sounded like well they must be a member of the district committee, but they're not. They're they're a they're an area committee. They're, they're, yeah, they're a member of the area committee from a district. So they're a dis that's why I mean district committee member. DCM is a member of the area committee, okay. but they're elected by a district. So they're 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 an area committee member from a district, and they call them district committee members. Um, so that's what DCM's got. So and again, different areas do it a little differently. Uh, here in North Carolina, in Area 51, we have four area committee meetings a year, and so and so the area committee acts like a steering committee for the assemblies, essentially. Um, and so they meet. We we meet uh, summer and winter. We have committee members, and then spring and fall we have assemblies. But the night before the assembly, we have a, a little quick committee meeting the night before the assembly. Uh, and so the area committee is the officers, which we have a delegate with an alternate chair with an alternate. Then secretary, treasurer, and registrar, and then we have a bunch of coordinators. We have special needs, CPCPI, corrections, uh, uh, special needs slash accessibilities, um, literature, grapevine. You know, sorry for whatever I left out, but we have all these different <laughs> coordinators. So, so the the officers, the coordinators, and the DCMs make up the area committee, and then the people in the area committee, when items come through, and they're split split up into different uh, subcommittees. So you have budget, finance, and you have this is clear as mud. Yeah, so they have a whole bunch of things. So, but but they but they they're the steering committee. They they kind of work more frequently than the assembly. And the assemblies themselves are relatively large, even though we have over 1,100 meetings or registered groups, I should say, in um, 
North Carolina, and I think we had what 200, 200 something. Um, so we, you know, we have less than a quarter of them actually get their DSRs to the to the assembly. But even even with that relatively low level of participation, you still have hundreds of people at, at an assembly. Um, so there was three hundred something people at the at the assembly total. Okay, and then above the assembly, below the assembly, below the assembly. So yes. Is so to do a little high, clarification here, so what you're talking about when you're talking, Don, you're 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 putting the groups at the bottom and then right. the district above that and then the area above that and then mm -hmm. the general service conference above that. Right. You can go like that and then turn it all over. Right. So that the right. groups are at the top and they're the wide part of the triangle, mm -hmm. and then the district is a narrower part of the triangle, and then the area is a narrower part of the triangle, and then the general service conference is the point. And then we get into the corporations right. and, and all that. Okay. So that's the inverted triangle where so much of what we do in the real world, not in Alcoholics Anonymous, is top down. Mm -hmm. This is kind of bottom up. So, But to represent mm -hmm. that, we just flip the triangle over. So it's still top down, but the groups have all the power. Which is an amazing thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's, really and that's, what, that's what allows people to spend... Decades in a, actively in service, in direct service, and, and active in the fellowship, and mostly unaware. I mean, they, they may have heard these terms GSR and stuff, but if they're not interested in it, they just they just don't don't do that. Um, I always encourage people to do it just because I think it's a whole lot of fun. And, but that's like said, so, but the general service. That's the things that we always talk about the inverted triangle. If you look in the service manual. That's where you see the pictures, and you, that's what I say. So I've got you. So you have groups, district, area. The areas elect delegates. The delegates go to the General Service Conference, which is held every April in New York. Um, but that's the the conference is Whoa. that is the effective voice of AA as a whole, and so the the conference approves the trustees. It approves. Um, they're usually given a slate of like who the directors of uh, AWS and Grapevine are going to be. So they have to, they uh, actually are submitted for disapproval. I mean, it's like, this is our slate and you can vote it down if you if you want to. But, but the I can tell Kenneth loves it this stuff. Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not fun. It is so much fun. It is so much fun. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things I think it's really important for anyone who, want, you know, get into AA and, and get sober. You know, get, get your life put together. Mm -hmm. And check out service. Check out the general service side of things. It's not for everybody, but that wonderful thing that we talk about contempt prior to investigation, there's a lot of that when it comes to general service in my experience because folks haven't checked it out. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things that's absolutely not for everybody. But go check it out. And like something that was told to me early on, um, it was recommended that whenever I go to check out an AA, a new AA group, Mm -hmm. that I go three times before I make a decision whether or not that group is a, a meeting that I want to go to. Mm -hmm. Because everybody, you know, people in groups, et cetera, can have a bad day. Right. We'll do the same thing with general service. Go three times. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Kenneth, thanks for joining us at the Boiled Owl. Thank you. I'm glad. I've always wanted to know just how Boiled an Owl is. <laughs> well, I don't know if we've answered that question. <laughs> well, so I'll, I'll say this. I've been to many fictional uh, coffee shops in my time, and this is one of the nicest. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. 
leave feedback or ask a question on the blog or email, give a hoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services.